is this feature going to contribute to the overall vision of the company? So our overall vision is accessibility. How can we uh, create something that makes it easier for us to sell? The first few modules, which is coding, underwriting, and issuing of the policy, are primary features that you need to sell the policy. Now, when, when it comes to billing, counting, reporting, you need those, but you can actually do some manual interventions. You can hire someone, they can do that offline. Is it the most efficient way? Of course not. My name is Hadi Radwan, and I'm the co-founder of Astea. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Hadi Rodwin is building the platform to protect your family by providing options for income insurance. All this and more on Code Story. Hadi Rodwin is an amateur biohacker, which was a new term for me and means trying to DIY your own biology. He's a family man and enjoys playing fantasy sports. He's also a podcaster and regularly interviews founders on his podcast, The First 100, to learn how those people obtain their first 100 customers. When it comes to family, he just had a newborn, so most of his time is devoted to that. Hadi and his team took a hard look at the market and realized that one out of four people are disabled in their career due to an unforeseen circumstance. Strikingly, 50% of folks are living paycheck to paycheck and don't even know disability insurance exists. They decided to build a product based on technology that fills this gap. This is the creation story of Astea. We are very interested in knowing how people can protect uh, their family. One of the most important assets that you build is your income. It's, it's your lifeline. It's what helps your family grow from going to school tomorrow if you have children, to buying a house if you have a mortgage, uh, to even uh, if you want to have uh, unforeseen uh, circumstances like a sickness or an illness and you might be out of job for a while. You need that income to, to keep you afloat. So we looked at the market originally and we saw that statistically speaking, one out of four people get disabled due to an unforeseen circumstance during their career. So while they're working, they get disabled. And that's four times more likely than someone dying. And we found out that most of the people buy life insurance versus what is well known in the U.S. as disability insurance. More than 50% of the U.S. population are living paycheck to paycheck. So even if your paycheck is big, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're not saving enough, if un an unforeseen circumstance happened, you would end up without an income and that puts your family at risk. And the final interesting statistics, uh, we found out that more than half of the population as well don't know that disability insurance exists. So that is a big opportunity for us to find out a way to help the U.S. population to protect their income. So that's the premise of how Astea was built. It was built on a on a market gap that we wanted to fill. And then we wanted to approach it from a technological perspective. We want to make sure we bring a product that is affordable, a product that's accessible, 
and then definitely a product that's easy to sell. So we've dived into uh, into the whiteboard and sketched how we can build Astea in, in, in this uh, type of, of format. And in 2019, we, we launched it and then we went live early 2020. So we haven't been uh, for, for a while in, in the market, but we believe there's a huge potential for our uh, company to help the U.S. population. So that's in a nutshell how Astea was started and what sort of market gap we're trying to fill. Let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about the MVP. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So interestingly enough, uh, when it comes to insurance, it's a highly regulated environment. So there are certain pieces that you need to invest in before you go live with the product. In any tech startup, product market fit is, is important. You invest a little bit in, a, in a, a minimum viable product, you test out the demand, and then you, you double down on it. In insurance, you can do all of this, but you cannot sell a policy if you don't have licenses. And every state in the U.S. requires a separate license. So it took us around a year to get all our licenses in place. Also, the product itself, they're complicated. It's not like uh, you're trying to create a CRM where you, you sketch uh, the, the user stories, you sketch the features, and then you go out and test it out with a sample of people. When it comes to insurance, the products you want to build, you have to price it right, you have to file it with the regulator, you have to get their approval in every state, and then you can sell it. So that took us another year, and that's why we were in stealth mode. Now, as we were applying for all of this, we were not idle, of course, we were building our technology. And the first version was mainly, we looked at the insurance value chain from A to Z. That means you go into the coating side or the application, we digitize it. You go to what we call the underwriting, which is risk selection, risk estimation, and then risk pricing. And then also we, we went into policy administration. So eventually we need to issue the policy, we need to cancel the policy, we need to give the customer the ability to change the policy, and then definitely billing and claims. As you can see, the insurance value chain is long, and it took us around a year as well to build our first version. So everything in insurance is a little bit complicated, and that's why the industry as well is hard to crack in. You wouldn't see a lot of insurtechs fighting in the same lines of business. We've seen an influx of investment happening over the past five years, and the majority of the investment happened in 2021. And then it died a little bit this year as the market started to either consolidate or the valuation dip because of, of market conditions. So we took it what we call slow and deliberate, and then we went out uh, uh, to the public. That's a long answer for, for, for an MVP. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. That's a great answer. And, and, it, and it highlights some things for my next question. So I'm curious about decisions and trade-offs, you know, the comp- having to adhere to the complicated insurance industry. I'm curious when you built the first product, if there were any sort of like acceptance of technical debt or feature cut that you had to work through. And I'm curious how you coped with those decisions in the early days. The way I look at the features is I have this two by two matrix. I would say, is this feature going to contribute to the overall vision of the company? So our overall vision is accessibility. How can we uh, create something that makes it easier for us to sell? 
The first few modules, which is coding, underwriting, and issuing of the policy, are primary features that you need to sell the policy. Now, when, when it comes to billing, counting, reporting, you need those, but you can actually do some manual intervention. So you can hire someone, they can do that offline. Is it the most efficient way? Of course not. But as you're starting, you have to make these trade-offs. You have to say what features will, will contribute to the end goal that I have. So that's the first thing I would look at. And the second thing I would look at is the size of the team and their capacity and the, their ability to take a feature and deliver it quickly. So that means we need to take the coating feature, for example, and to dissect it into uh, small bits and pieces that we can go live with without being a bottleneck for the rest of the platform. So that's what the second thing we look at. And then finally, the complexity of the feature is also very important. If the, if the feature is extremely complex, it's going to spread over a longer time period. We separate teams. So we have two teams. You have a team that runs small features that we can go live with. So that's a one-week sprint. And then for features that are longer, we do two to four-week sprint because we don't want to waste time in weekly deployments and then weekly testing because that also would delay deliverables. So you've got your MVP. It's working. You're, you're making progress. How did you mature and progress the, the product from there? And I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, I'm curious about how you went about building your roadmap and what process you followed to decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Estella. So there, there's two things we look at. One is who's going to be using the platform. And in our case, we do not sell directly to the end consumer. We partner with distribution partners who are licensed like a broker or an agent or even a managing general agent. So it's a bigger company that might have multiple uh, agents under them. And we talk to them. We say, okay, if you have this platform, what is the most important feature for you? They would say, probably I need collaterals or I need a quick quote or I need the ability to add agents under my account. So once we identify which are the critical features that our users would want, we move them up the roadmap. So we have a pipeline and the pipeline usually extends three to six months. And then we have layered teams under the pipeline. Uh, we have five teams today. We had one team back then when it was an MVP. And then we say, okay, this is a feature that's critical, that's needed by the customer. We, we move it upstream. We say, start focusing on that particular one. And then the second stakeholder that's also very important is our underwriters or our product builders. They would advise us products that they're building to which gap they're trying to fill in the market. And then we need to understand the regulatory and compliance element. By looking at all of this, we would be able as well to prioritize the roadmap because without the product, you cannot service the agent so that they sell the customer. So this is how we shape which is more important on the roadmap and we move it up and down. Then as we're releasing, we have that feedback loop. The agent would be using the platform, the underwriters would be using the platform, and then we collect those feedback, we feed it back to the roadmap, and then we move around the priorities accordingly. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? We are in a service business. The most important asset in the organization is, is people. 
they're building the platform, they're building the product, they're servicing the customer, they're building the relationship with the distribution partners. So it is extremely hard to find the right people. Even if you have the best interviewing process, you take them through hoops, sometimes you have to get lucky with this. We've iterated multiple times. We got lucky with our leads. So I have a chief product officer and CTO who are exceptional. I trust them a lot in the way they hire their, their peers. We agree on a format. We say this is the type of people from a cultural perspective we would like to have. So we're big on flexibility. We're big on collaboration. We're big on communication. We avoid hippo, which is the highest paid person with an opinion. So if you come in and you're an executive and you're paid a big sum of money, that does not mean your opinion is better than someone else as junior. So we avoid hippos at all costs. And we try to keep a flat organization, meaning not from a higher hierarchical perspective, but uh, the ability for someone who's junior to be able to reach me and tell me ideas, tell me their challenges, their thoughts. So we built this type of culture. And as we're interviewing people, we try to see, are they a fit for this or not? We do have some exams that uh, we go through. We've iterated multiple times, and now we have something that helps us at least screen um, people that would fit into our organization. So that was the, the, the thought process originally that I've put in place get a team that uh, is fitting into the culture they're hardworking, driven they want to be part of this vision now if they are excellent on the skill part you you have a winner if they're good on the skill part that's fine because they would learn across uh, their career okay let's flip to scalability then so this will, this will be interesting because it can be technology or it can be people and i'm curious how you approached it was this built to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow in any capacity? We wanted something very scalable, so the platform is very modular. Each module in the insurance value chain has the ability to talk to external providers. We have APIs along, along the way. But definitely, as you're building the platform and it's maturing, you would see that there are certain shortcuts you have to take because you want to, the deliverable to hit the timeline and you want to go live. So what we do is we try not to create a lot of refactoring. We try to think from day one that this is the ultimate goal we want to do. But if we had to do some shortcuts, we do it, but we go back and fix it. So the, the platform is built to be very scalable. That's the core principle behind it because as Astea is growing, we want to make sure that the size of the source code doesn't become a technical debt if things change, so if we introduce a new product, well, can we onboard that product within a few days as compared to the original version, which was a few months? Now, if we can do that, then the platform was built correctly. So that's the process we think about it. Modular, scalable, a little bit of shortcuts to hit the deadline, but then we go back and then we try to go on, on, on refactoring mode to get to the, to the right modularity. So... As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I mean, it boils down to the team. This is the, for me, it's the most important thing that we've built. We've grown now to 80 people. I'm very proud that people don't leave the organization 
I'm very proud as well that the team has reviewed us on Glassdoor, for example, and we got five stars from everyone. It's anonymous, so sometimes you have disgruntled employees that would put a one star. We ha- we don't have that. I'm also very proud that the way we've built the team, they understand that sometimes in a startup there's hiccups. If there's hiccups, that doesn't mean we are not here for them. They are patient with us, and they know that the road ahead is sometimes bumpy when the bombs go away we're, we're there for them so i think it's very important that the team is the is the number one priority for us we are a technology company and we are an insurance tech firm as well the source code is great the, the technology is great what we've built is first class but if the people are not here the source code will will not continue to be good and if the source code is not here that's fine we have the people they can build it again Number one thing is the employee. And when you have a very strong culture with the right people, they would build the right technology. They would be very motivated to service the customer. Now you have a very happy customer who comes back, they give you five stars, they give you the thumbs up, they give you the money because you're solving a pain point for them. And that means that the investor is very happy because now you're giving them a return for their investment. So it always starts with the employee and then the customer, and then the investor. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You know, we do mistakes all the time. And that's that's uh, something good because every time we do a mistake, we have a post-mortem. We go back to the drawing board. We understand what we've done. Could we have avoided it? Uh, and if we could have, what went wrong in our analysis? There's team mistakes and there's personal mistakes. On on the personal mistakes, something I could share is I've hired sometimes the wrong people. I was overconfident maybe in my interview process. I had a connection during the interview. Uh, but then, you know, when you've hired that person, you, you'd find out that, okay, there was red flags, there was cues, there was things throughout the interview process that did not make sense. You missed out on that and the problem when it comes to hiring is it's very costly for two reasons one is you're paying someone a salary but also there's an opportunity cost because you could have hired someone else who could have generated more value during that period but they don't show up they're not visible it's not like when you lose a client that was paying you a million dollar it's extremely visible because now the million dollar is gone these were the biggest mistakes that i've done because the rest of the mistakes are small. You learn from them, you move on, you break things fast, you try to avoid them at a later stage. So I think I would want to do a better job on finding the right people to join the organization. This will be fun to ask, Adi. So what's the future look like for the product and for your team? We know our vision. We know our mission. We want to make what we call income insurance accessible for everyone in the U.S. Every family or every individual in the U.S. should have income protection. Because at the end of the day, the moment you're at, at home, not able to work, you're putting your family at risk. So we want to keep on building products that fill all the income uh, protection gaps. People earning between 20000 to 50000 or people earning a million dollar or $10 million, they should have 
some form of protection, if they come to us, we would be able to service them. So that's on the product side. On the technology side, we would love to continue improving our products so that our agents and our producers who are working with us also can sell faster, they can make more money, they can service their customer in a better way, and even they can onboard their own sub-agents so that they would be able to accelerate the penetration of our products to the U.S. population because we cannot do it on our own. And the only way we can contribute to this is to facilitate through technology their ability to sell our products. Let's switch to you, Hadi. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I grew up without a mentor. I didn't have someone that I could go back to and ask for advice. So what I've done early on, I figured that uh, if you read books, there's a lot of nuggets there, but it takes a lot of time. Recently, I, I switched to podcasts. There's so much information out there. There's so many experts that you can look up to, motivational speakers, even experts in business and starting up a company that would give you these tips. And you can learn them very fast because I'm more of auditory and visual person. I look at things and I remember them. I hear them and I remember them. You could do 2x or 1.8x the speed of a podcast. So you can consume it twice as much as reading. So I've tried to get influenced by many leaders. One of my early people who I got influenced with is Tony Robbins. I've read his books. I've attended his seminars. And he was very influential from that side because it helped me pave my way into understanding what Hadi wants. Also, that helped me as well as, as a person to be more empathetic, to become a better family man, and definitely to understand people just by listening to them. So that's in a nutshell where I got the most influence from. Okay, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'm big on Stoics principles. And in Stoics, they tell you the mistakes you make are fine as long as you learn from them. You cannot avoid those mistakes. So even if you go back with hindsight, and you try to make things different, you'll always make mistakes. And as long as you learn from these mistakes and understand what they are, then you're good. And I, I wouldn't want to go back and change a mistake actually every mistake i've done in my life is a learning for me I, I tell my team it's it's a privilege to fail because when you fail it means you tried if you never fail it means you never tried and that means you never progressing and progress is vital in life the moment you stop progressing you lose motivation for me progress is important and the only way you progress is to make mistakes well, last question Adi. so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can we show it off to you right there on the plane? What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? The first thing I would do is I would ask questions. I was at the beginning of my career, someone who rushes into answering things. And the moment that I figured out that if you ask a lot of questions, sometimes people don't want answers. They want just someone to ask them questions so that they figure out things on their own. And someone, like you're saying, starting up their company, they want to be challenged. They want to say, okay, I'm starting my business in XYZ industry. If you start asking them questions, it would unfold for them 
a lot of things that they have not thought of. And that's the, the main reason as well I've started my own podcast, The First 100, because I wasn't very good at asking questions. And I wanted to put myself in a difficult situation where I forced myself to ask only questions. I don't want to give advice. I don't want to give answers. I'm only curious enough to ask questions and people would willingly share their advice, their stories, their challenges, and that would inspire someone else. So ask questions always. Fantastic advice. Well, Hadi, thank you for being on the show today. and Thank you for telling the creation story of Esteya. Thank you for your time, Noah. I was very happy that I joined your podcast. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.